Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's about 7pm on St Patrick's Day and James Robert Walker sits beneath a street lamp on Barclay Street, St Kilda, outside the home of his erstwhile friend, The Thing, a.k.a. Herbert Adams. Walker has a sawn-off shotgun in a canvas case and cartridges in his pocket. His plan is simple. When his other long-standing enemy, The Brain, arrives, Walker's going to follow him into the house and kill him and The Thing. But as he's sitting there, Walker's attention is suddenly drawn to a woman running out of a house on the other side of Barclay Street. She's being chased by a man who catches her by the wrist. Rita, this bloke calls. Let me go, Tom, she screams. The revelation hits Walker like a ton of bricks. The woman being chased is Rita, his wife. And the man threatening her is her lover, Tom Fogarty. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Most Vicious Gunman. Walker didn't move a muscle as he watched Rita and Fogarty fight on the street. She was an adult. She could take care of herself. But then he heard her cry, Tom, you're hurting me. Walker pulled the gun out of its case, cocked both barrels, jumped up and crossed the road. Fogarty looked up and let go of Rita, who fell against a parked car. Seeing Walker, Fogarty's face was horror-stricken. He stepped back, hands out, saying, No, 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 not me. Then Walker saw a flash of flame. Fogarty had a gun and had fired it at him. 
Walker squeezed one of the Saunders triggers. Hit, Fogarty threw his hands up, spun around, his little gun going flying as Walker gave him the second barrel. Fogarty fell face first onto the ground. Walker reloaded and put two more cartridges into Fogarty. People everywhere were screaming. Walker claimed he went back to where he'd been sitting to see if the brain had arrived, unaware that Rita had fled down a nearby blind alley where people were locking their doors as she screamed that a man was trying to kill her. One woman let Rita in and hid her for an hour. Meanwhile, still determined to fulfill his mission, Walker circled around until he could get to the back gate of the Barclay Street house. Inside, he reckoned he heard the thing saying to the brain, that walker's mad, he never forgets. He's liable to come here, locks won't stop him. Then Walker heard them run out of the house and slam the front door. The brain and the thing went into smoke. Walker did the same and went on a drinking bender. Thomas Fogarty died of his wounds in hospital around 11 o'clock that night. He was the third man that James Robert Walker had murdered. When he read the newspapers the next day, Walker couldn't figure out why none of the articles mentioned Fogarty's gun. As for his own shotgun, he'd dumped it in Albert Park Lake. Walker went back to his South Yarra room to get some money. While he was there, cops raided the house and took him to Russell Street headquarters where the head of the homicide squad said, Hello Bob, you really have got yourself into serious trouble. Walker said that these cops said at least he wouldn't have to worry about the recently elected Labor government hanging him. Hearing that made Walker wish he hadn't thrown his gun in the lake, made him wish that he'd used it on himself. But Walker's depression lifted when Rita walked in to visit. Hello fella, she said, and told him that no matter what, she'd stand by him. Rita told Walker that she had picked up Fogarty's pistol and had now given it to Walker's lawyer. She said she'd been so demented she'd picked it up without realising how its disappearance might be detrimental to Walker's case. And the disappearance and then reappearance of this pistol was detrimental and highly suspicious. Rita came to see Walker every day bringing him clothes, toiletries, cigarettes, books and magazines, while also organising and paying for his legal defence. In his letters to her, he said he expected to get no less than 20 years when he was tried. Walker blamed himself. I shuffled and dealt myself a hand, so I'll just have to play the cards as they fall. But he had no regrets about blowing away Tom Fogarty. He wrote to Rita, Please remember that... For you, in the same circumstance, I would again repeat the St. Patrick's Day performance. When Walker went on trial for murder in June 1953, he didn't testify that he'd been waiting in Barclay Street to kill the brain and the thing. It would hardly have helped his case to hear that he'd killed a man in self-defence with the same gun he was about to use to commit a premeditated double homicide. Instead, Walker's defence was that he'd been drinking heavily, had become depressed and had obtained the shotgun to kill himself, 
which was what he was contemplating when he sat on the curb in Barclay Street waiting for his mate, Digger Adams, to come home. He'd seen the couple fighting, realised it was Rita being threatened by Fogarty and intervened. Walker told the court that Fogarty had said, I'll show you, and fired straight at his face. Walker said, I don't know how he missed. Walker said he'd grabbed Fogarty's gun hand, pulled out his own gun and fired twice at Fogarty, who fell to the ground. Walker quickly reloaded and, thinking Fogarty was about to fire again, shot him two more times. Given Walker's history of depression, this suicide story was plausible enough, though it did beg the question why he'd chosen that spot, outside the house of his supposed friend and opposite the house of his wife's lover. It made sense if he was there to kill the thing and the brain, but it also raised the possibility that Walker's intended victim was Fogarty and maybe even Rita. But if that was the case, why did Rita support him? And Walker needed her support. During his murder trial, numerous Crown witnesses testified that Fogarty had not been holding a gun. Rita claimed that he had. On the night of the 17th, she said, she and Fogarty had argued and she'd fled the house. Fogarty had chased her, brandishing the gun now tendered in evidence, and screamed, Come back, Rita, or I will effing well shoot you. Fogarty had caught her, was swearing and pulling her, when she heard a man's voice say, What do you mean, shoot a goddamn woman? Fogarty, she testified, let her go. Rita fell into the gutter and heard a crack as Fogarty fired his pistol at the man she now saw was her husband. There followed several shotgun blasts and Fogarty's pistol fell into the gutter near Rita. She snatched it up and ran terrified. When she said to the woman who gave her shelter, he's after me, he's going to kill me, she told the court, she'd been referring not to Walker but to Fogarty. Rita testified that she'd stayed with Fogarty out of fear and that he'd regularly beat her, broken her ribs and threatened her with a gun. In Adelaide the previous year, she said he'd attacked her with a razor, slicing off part of one of her ears and slashing her so badly she needed 32 stitches. Four witnesses were brought in from Pentridge to testify that they knew Fogarty was a brutal gun and razor-toting bastard whose nickname was Slasher Tom. Whether the jury believed some or none of this, its members clearly didn't accept Walker's self-defence plea. On Friday the 12th of June 1953, just after 8.30pm, its members convicted him of murder. Hearing their verdict and the judge pass the death sentence, Walker's mind raced. He didn't want to beg for mercy. He didn't want to appear a coward. He knew he'd done the wrong thing almost all of his life, that he'd fought and lost his battle with his Mr Hyde. He decided the only way to be the person he'd always wanted to be meant he'd have to die. In death, he might find redemption, peace, even goodness. That, Walker said, was why he asked that the death penalty be carried out. Some suggested he was playing an angle, that he made his request knowing it wouldn't be carried out, but that his boldness would boost his standing when he got to Pentridge. Maybe, 
But while behind bars and on suicide watch in Metropolitan Jail awaiting Cabinet's decision, Walker did put his request to the government in writing and tried to enlist the Truth newspaper in his campaign to die. When Rita visited, he repeatedly denied her pleas that he lodge an appeal against his conviction. Walker said he'd had a fair trial and that he wanted to die. He was assessed by a government doctor and psychiatrist who declared him of sound mind. On the 3rd of August 1953, the Victorian state government decreed that Walker would serve life in Pentridge Prison. Technically, that'd mean he'd be eligible for parole in 28 years. If he lived long enough, Walker might be free again in the far-off year of 1981. Walker was transferred to Pentridge, put into cell 142 on Tier 6 of B Division, where other lifers were housed. He'd be allowed one visitor and one incoming letter each month. Walker was allowed to write a single letter monthly, but he had to contain his correspondence to private matters only. When Walker arrived at Pentridge, he was taken to see Deputy Governor Ernest Fox and told he'd work in the boot shop and be expected to toe the line. If he didn't, he'd be sent to the tailor's shop. Walker said that Fox knew he didn't like certain types of men. By this, he meant homosexuals. And as there are a lot of homosexual men in the tailor's shop, Fox was using the threat of being sent there as a potential punishment. Settling in, Walker said it wasn't long before prisoners came to him with their escape plans. He rebuffed them all, knowing most were snitches. But Walker was secretly thinking about escape. There was no way he could endure Pentridge for the rest of his life. Walker wrote his monthly letter to Rita. Knowing the screws would expunge anything about his case or prison conditions, he kept his letters light and cheerful. He told her he loved her, but he hoped she'd divorce him and find a good man. Walker also recounted innocuous little incidents about life on the inside, such as how he'd played the part of Little Red Riding Hood in the prison pantomime, and how an unlikely number of prisoners believed Queen Elizabeth II would pardon them all during her tour of Australia. A few months into his sentence, Walker got his hands on an exercise book and, by candlelight at night, started writing his life story and setting down his true feelings about Pentridge. In page after page, he wrote the stories you've been hearing, detailing his childhood, his criminal career, the men he'd killed, the times men had tried to kill him, his love for Rita and his regret at not being better for her, his time in America and experiences in the war, his return to Australia and how and why he'd been where he was when he shot Tom Fogarty. Walker also wrote of his hatred for snitches, which was why, even though he loathed them, he only referred to his sworn enemies as the brain and the thing. While such confessions often see criminals spreading blame around, Walker wrote repeatedly that he was a heel and completely responsible for his predicament. 
Walker sometimes interrupted his narrative with stream-of-consciousness musings on his dark nature. Here's one sample. When they tell me I'm sane, it only tends to deepen my perplexity. I admire and love sincerely and honestly, and I cry for the qualities that I lack, yet I repeat and perform the things I loathe and despise. How can I expect anyone to understand me when I can't even get to understand myself? Kill me. Kill this life, this flesh and blood. Kill this thing that makes me tick. Crush me into oblivion because this is not the me I want to be. It's the other me, my mother's me, for which I am ever seeking. Walker devoted even more pages to describing the abysmal conditions in Pentridge. The terrible food, he said, caused the most resentment among inmates. Breakfast and dinner were lumpy porridge, maybe with some fat-smeared, thick-cut bread and brown water they called tea. Lunch was a small portion of meat and a few potatoes. Everything was served up cold. Electric hotboxes that had been bought a year earlier to keep food hot remained in storage. A prisoner who wanted to eat better had to buy food from corrupt guards in a system where graft was rife. On the days prisoners weren't working, that was weekends and public holidays, they were forced into a cramped yard where there was no shelter from Melbourne's cold wind and rain. Men would get themselves into trouble just so they were confined to their cells and out of such conditions. Walker said there were plenty of good, honest warders and overseers who hated the graft and conditions, but there was nothing they could do. Walker was also nauseated that sex offenders weren't segregated. He wrote, You have had royal commissions into all kinds of things. Why not demand one into the prisons department? I can assure you that you would be startled by the facts. Putting such details down on paper was explosive. If his memoir was discovered during the regular searches of his cell, Walker could expect to be punished and marked out for special treatment. But what he recorded next in his exercise book was far more dangerous. Walker set down his escape plans. In a smuggled letter, the fix had asked if Walker could organise to get himself close to the car owned by Pentridge's chief overseer, Mr Matthews. Walker reckoned he could. That vehicle was regularly parked near the labour yards and the tailor shop. All Walker had to do was get himself in trouble. Through the prison black market, he bought four bottles of vanilla extract whose alcohol content was 50%. A few days after Christmas 1953, Walker got conspicuously drunk in his cell and wedged the door shut to further frustrate guards. For his little stunt, Walker was sentenced to an extra 30 days prison and further punished with 30 days breaking rocks in the labour yards before being sent to the tailor's shop. His plan had worked. The labour yards, along with the tailor's shop, were right where Chief Overseer Matthews parked the car. One day Walker surreptitiously fixed a piece of coal to the underside of the car's mudguard. The next day, the piece of coal was still there, along with a note from The Fix. This was proof that security searches in and out of the jail were cursory at best. Walker had worked out how to easily get things into Pentridge. 
And what he wanted was a gun. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Brought before Deputy Governor Fox again, Walker was told he could have a plum job in the signwriter's shop if he agreed to act as a snitch. Walker said yes, though he had no intention of snitching. But that talk with Fox, he said, changed his outlook. Lying in his cell, Walker realised that his escape could ruin the lives of innocent people. His plan, which was to use a gun to take Chief Overseer Mr Matthews hostage and have him drive Walker out of prison, was deeply flawed. Walker realised he might have to kill Matthews, who he considered just to be a good, hard-working guy doing his job. Or he might have to kill some other guard or warder similarly just doing their duty. Even if he escaped without killing anyone, on the outside he'd put Rita, the Fix and other people he cared about at risk if he involved them in his troubles. After nights debating with himself, Walker made a decision. He gave up on the idea of escape. He was going to die in the big house. That was inevitable. But there was still a way to liberate himself. Taking his biggest risk yet, Walker wrote down what he planned to do. Nil desperandum, he started. Latin for never despair. He continued, here is my final plan, and only death will prevent me from carrying it out as I want. I am going to rub out eight men. Walker was going to kill the eight men he hated most in Pentridge. Deputy Governor Ernest Fox, Chief Warder Jack Maguire, Warders McCluskey and Rook, along with four prisoners who'd really pissed him off. To do this, he'd need to hold hostage a warder, but he promised that while giving what he called his little rub-out party, he'd do everything possible to avoid hurting or killing any prison official or inmate not on his kill list. Concluding his memoir, which now ran to some 155 pages, Walker wrote wistfully of Rita, who, during their visits, had told him the years would slip by and one day they'd live together in a little cottage. Quote, Little does she dream that while she is planning a little home for the future, I am planning a little massacre for the present. Walker's parting words, written in April 1954, included, By the time you read this, I'll be dead. But I know for sure a few will die with me. You have, I know, a very brief, badly written story of my life. I don't blame anyone but myself. I look forward to my big sleep, death, with eagerness. I can practically hear the coroner now as he reads his verdict. James Robert Walker did willfully murder and then, while of unsound mind, commit suicide. 
Well, readers, if I am of unsound mind now, then I have been of unsound mind all my life. Still, you have read the story, so set your bias aside, weigh the facts, add or subtract what you will, but let your opinion be an honest one. Can you tell yourself the thing I was forever seeking and could never understand? What made me tick? What made him tick? Walker didn't know. But he did know that his authorship of his memoir and his final letter to Rita might be challenged, so he carefully put his inked fingerprints on every single page. Walker had his writings smuggled out of Pentridge with instructions on when they should be delivered to Rita by registered mail. Walker's threats to kill eight people could have been mistaken as the rantings of a deluded prisoner, except that his boast, that he was in a position to get a gun delivered right to my door at my convenience, was true, and he had, along with more than 40 bullets. Around 2.30 on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of May 1954, Walker asked to see Chief Warder Maguire on a confidential matter. A trustee prisoner named Walsh left Maguire's office as Walker strode in. Walker took a seat and then pulled out a 32 caliber revolver and ordered Maguire to summon Deputy Governor Fox. Maguire tried to stall him, but eventually relented and called Fox. Before Fox arrived, Walker ordered trustee prisoner Walsh into the office to use a belt to tie up Maguire. When Fox arrived, Walker held him at gunpoint and ordered that three prisoners be brought from the yard and put into their cells. Fox complied. Those three prisoners... William O'Mealy, Ronald Blamey and Harold Sheehan, Walker said, would be dead by the end of the day. Walker then had Warder Rook summoned and ordered trustee prisoner Walsh to tie up Fox and Rook. Walker then tied up Walsh and ordered Fox to summon senior warder Richard Ash. When Ash walked into the trap, Walker told him, do what you're told and nothing will happen to you. But he added... I am a dead shot and I'll shoot to kill. Locking Maguire, Fox, Rook and Walsh in the office, Walker warned them he'd kill an officer if they raised the alarm. Walker took Ash down onto the wing where he demanded that three more warders be locked up and herded 15 prisoners into a cell. Then he ordered Ash to handcuff himself to a desk. He said that when he was done killing prisoners and officers, Ash should use the phone to summon help because by then Walker himself would be dead. But when Walker set his gun down on a table to lock an entrance gate, Ash bravely dragged the desk across the room and grabbed the revolver. Walker rushed at him. Ash fired at his stomach and missed. When Ash squeezed the trigger again, nothing happened. Ash tried to fight Walker one-handed. Walker knocked the revolver from his hand and then punched and kicked him into submission. Meanwhile, back in Maguire's office, trustee prisoner Walsh had wriggled free of his bonds and untied Maguire, Fox and Rook, who raised the alarm. Having heard Ash fire the shot, 
two armed warders arrived on the wing and shot at Walker, who returned fire before running to his own cell. Then a final shot rang out and there was silence. Approaching cautiously, the warders used mirrors to see into Walker's cell. Walker, they saw, was alive, but bleeding from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, along with another bullet wound in one of his feet. Under the guard of a prison warder, Walker was rushed by ambulance to Royal Melbourne Hospital. There, doctors found the bullet had entered his right temple, traversed his forehead and lodged in the skull near his left temple. Walker couldn't be operated on. But he was supposedly questioned by the police. He told them nothing and said he'd been warned to keep quiet by prison officials. Rita wasn't officially notified of what had happened. She had to hear it on the radio and she then rushed to be by her husband's side and to tell him she loved him. After receiving last rites from Father O'Keefe of St Mary's North Melbourne, James Robert Walker died, aged 43, just a few minutes before midnight. There was a furor. How had a man serving a life sentence for murder been able to get a gun into maximum security, take over an entire section of Pentridge Prison and very nearly kill eight people? Yet to receive his final letter and memoir, Rita told a reporter and the police that in his letters, Walker had always been cheery and had seemed reasonably happy during their monthly visits. She said she had no idea why he wanted to kill those eight men or how he'd gotten a gun. Walker was buried in the Roman Catholic section of Cheltenham Cemetery at 10am on Monday the 31st of May 1954. There were 11 floral tributes, one of which was a wreath of violets with a card that read, Only Forever, Rita. Three weeks later, Walker started to speak from the grave. Rita had received his letter and memoir. She shared his personal farewell first and it caused a newspaper sensation around Australia. Sydney's The Sun newspaper gave it the front page treatment. Life as plan to slay eight. Sensational jail letter, he suicided. Melbourne Saturday, one of the most sensational letters ever smuggled from a jail, was received yesterday by the wife of a murderer who suicided in Pentridge less than three weeks ago. A photo of part of the letter was reproduced, showing how Walker had put his inked fingerprints on the bottom of each page to prove he'd written the words. He'd begun this letter with, Hello there, Rita. Whether you shall ever receive this letter is a thing I shall never know, as I shall be dead. He told her he'd been hatching his massacre suicide plan for a while and asked her to forgive him the little white lies he'd told her about being happy and looking forward to that far-off day when they could live together in the cottage. He wrote... The fight within me has been raging for years and years, always with the same result, 
Hyde defeats Jekyll on a TKO. Still, to me, my Hyde has his redeeming features. He only rubs out his own kind and type. Then Walker set out his plan, naming the men he was going to kill. He said he wanted his plan to expose the graft and corruption of the prison system. Yes, Rita, I know I am a heel, so I have decided to die in my right place, the big house. But I can assure you, I'm going to take some prize heels with me. Not surprisingly, the contents of the letter were hugely embarrassing to the Labor government, with its chief secretary, Bill Galvin, claiming Walker's claims were partisan and grossly exaggerated. But what didn't go in the favour of officialdom was the fact that for almost 24 hours after Walker shot himself, Pentridge authorities denied police access to the prison to investigate. And when an inquest was held at the city coroner's court on the 23rd of August 1954, not a single prisoner was called to give evidence about what had happened, even though Walker's intended victims had been in the thick of the action. At this inquest, which failed to establish how Walker had gotten his gun, it was revealed that Rita had in her possession far more in-depth correspondence from her late husband. The coroner, Mr S.M. Burke, said, Allegations of corruption and importation of other goods into Pentridge are matters for another authority. Giving evidence, Rita said she had Walker's memoir and she was going to publish it. Her lawyer addressed the coroner, saying that Walker may have wanted to kill eight men, but at the last moment he hadn't, and his actions might actually improve prison conditions. If he had wanted to kill, he had ample opportunities. It seems quite clear he relented. The coroner didn't necessarily agree, but he did say that Walker was, quote, a most extraordinary character. Even so, as Walker had predicted in his letter and in his memoir, the coroner concluded Walker's mind had been unbalanced when he initiated the siege and shot himself. The coroner sharply criticised Pentridge officials for denying police access, but praised the bravery of Warder Ash, who would later receive a £200 reward for actions that almost certainly prevented a massacre. Even after the inquest had concluded Walker was a dead madman, he still had the last word. Australia was gripped by his memoir, which was serialised in Melbourne's The Argus newspaper from mid-September. The Robert Walker story ran 13 instalments, totalling tens of thousands of words just as he'd written them, followed by three instalments that reproduced parts of his prison letters to Rita. Newspapers all around Australia, Brisbane's Telegraph, Perth's Mirror, Adelaide's The Mail, syndicated the story in full for the rest of 1954. The fallout? Actually, there wasn't a lot. Even as the inquest into Walker's one-man uprising and death was being carried out and his story was being read by hundreds of thousands of Australians, Pentridge Prison was rocked by riots, reports of violence committed by and against guards, 
ongoing allegations of systematic corruption and even the suspicious suicide by hanging of one of the prisoners Walker had wanted to rub out. But Chief Secretary Bill Galvin denied that any serious reform was needed. Pentridge did need to change, but it would still be a hellhole nearly 20 years later when Mark Chopper-Reed did his first stint there behind bars. It has been widely claimed that Chopper's stories are embellished. Is the same thing true of James Robert Walker's confession? How much of it can be believed? To be sure, there are discrepancies. Newspaper reports over the years are consistent with what Walker claimed, that he was born in 1911, but his Victorian police rap sheet lists his year of birth as 1898, while also containing a mugshot that has a stamp saying he was born in August 1907. Walker's account of how he met Big Jerry in jail also doesn't match up with that Sydney Crim's prison record. And there were other underworld claims that Walker and Big Jerry had been mates of a sort until they'd fallen out over drink and gambling monies. Even so, as soon as Walker died, but before his memoir was published, the Sydney crook who helped him go into smoke came forward to say that Walker had been responsible for Big Jerry's murder. Walker's Victorian police record also bears a scribbled note that he was believed guilty of this murder, along with that of James John. The other major discrepancy is Walker's account of that wartime convoy to Murmansk. If the dates he gives are right, then his account can't be true. Walker said that nearly half the Liberty ships on his convoy were lost on the trip from Scotland to Russia. Losses like this were recorded, but in July 1942, when Walker was still in Sydney. By late 1943, when he claimed to have sailed, the Allies had largely countered the threat from German U-boats and only a handful of Liberty ships were sunk. Still, it would have been terrifying, freezing and arduous. Maybe Walker was just trying to give himself a little retrospective glory. Of course, his entire memoir is told from his viewpoint, and even though he confessed to being a heel, it's coloured by his reasoning. Walker made no excuses for killing James John and Big Jerry and for seriously wounding Daniel Hossack and Johnny Devine, but his writing is meant to make us see why he committed these cold-blooded crimes. If Walker's victims had ever been able to speak, their story might have been very different. Even so, newspaper accounts and victim and witness statements, such as they were, mostly confirm the basic facts of Walker's accounts. Having spent a lot of time reading his words, I think the strongest reason to believe much of what Walker wrote is ultimately that he did blame himself for the trajectory he'd taken, and that he then set out what he was going to do to end his life and tried to follow through on it. Walker was planning a prison massacre suicide. In the end, I don't think he had much reason to lie. That said, the account of how he died is also open to question. We only have the version told by Pentridge prison officials who frustrated the police attempts to investigate and who wouldn't let prisoners testify. 
Did Walker actually shoot himself? His letters and memoir suggest that was the case, but we don't know for sure. Walker's story is awful but extraordinary. What's also striking, given how much Australia loves its wild men killers with hearts of gold, is how completely Walker dropped out of popular memory almost immediately. The Age newspaper's last reference to him was in 1955 when Warder Ash got that £200 reward. After that, nothing. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could leave a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to know more about this story or others, go to ForgottenAustralia.com or to the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.